At this time, Curtis Whiteley will come with the message, The Hunger That Shall Be Filled. Curtis, please. Thank you, Ken. Good, good morning, actually. Not afternoon. I'm so used to saying good afternoon uh, when I get up here and speak. I think I do that every single year. Uh, well, good morning. Uh, it is wonderful to be here, of course. Uh, this is my first day here. Me and my wife, we came down last night. Uh, and it's wonderful to see everyone here, the new faces, the old faces. Many of you already know. You're from Tulsa. You know me. I apologize. Uh, but... Uh, if you've noticed, the title is The Hunger That Shall Be Filled, and I just want to kind of give you a little background why I entitled it this, okay? I know that I was going to be speaking second today, and I knew that, you know, speaking second means that you're going to be speaking whenever a crowd's bellies are going to start being hungry. So this title is just a reminder to all of you, I promise the hunger that you will start to experience here in the next uh, few 20, 30 minutes because it's getting to be lunchtime, it will be filled. But that is my title, The Hunger That Shall Be Filled. And the message that we heard just a few minutes ago, I think is a very easy lean-in to this topic. All of us can relate to what hunger is, to what thirst is. We are all human beings. We have all experienced hunger or thirst at some point in time in our life. For many of us, if not all of us, it was just a few days ago that we experienced this on the Day of Atonement, a 24-hour clock where we fasted for 24 hours without food or without water, and we're all human. Most of us started to feel what it was like to be hungry. Some of us, though, may have experienced this at a more personal level. Maybe you've actually experienced not just what it's like to be hungry, but what it's like to go hungry. In other words, in a perpetual state, in an actual state of poverty. This, this coming December, my grandfather will have been dead one year, my mother's father. And at the age of 89 years old, uh, he, or 88, he passed away, uh, and he was diagnosed with cancer. And... Uh, he lived during the Great Depression. And later on in his life, I got to hear some of those experiences that he went through. Because at the age of 18, he found himself entering into the Navy and quickly on a ship in the Pacific Ocean, just before and after the great bombs were dropped on Japan. And hearing his stories as a little boy living in a place called Stone Bluff, Oklahoma, and I can imagine in the 30s and 20s, and, or the 30s, that it wasn't much because I drive through it every single day to work, and it's still not much, let alone what it was probably like in 1935 when he was just a little boy. And I don't think I can really understand exactly what he meant when he said that he went hungry as a little boy, that him and his sisters, he was the only male child, his father oftentimes would go off and not come back for, you know, maybe months on end and leave him, his sisters and his mothers hungry without sending them any support. And oftentimes they were at the mercy to people who would stand up and give them and help them out to feed them. I don't think that I 
can understand completely all the ramifications and exactly what that would be like to not just be hungry, but actually to go hungry and thirsty. Unfortunately, maybe some of us in here have experienced that before. And we know that people today still experience that. Which brings me to the text that I want us to look at today. The text is found in Matthew, the fifth chapter, and verse six. It's one of Jesus' Beatitudes. This text says, and seeing, or we're going to go to verse six. I'm going to skip. I apologize. I gave him all of Matthew 1 through 12, Matthew 5, 1 through 12. We're just going to read number, or uh, verse six. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, breaking into Jesus' beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And so what we see is, is we see this language oftentimes in the Bible, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, this language of being thirsty and hungry. And so I have basically three objectives for this message today. Number one, I want us to ask the question, just what type of righteousness is Jesus talking about hungering and thirsting, thirsting for? Number two, I want us to ask the question, what do people unfortunately replace this righteousness with? How do they quench and thirst their hunger and their thirst? How do they fulfill that? What are the things that they use to accomplish satisfaction in that? And of course, number three, as always, what do we do with this information? What does thirst and hunger for righteousness look like? In other words, how, I, how might we apply this hunger and thirst to our lives? So let's just go to Matthew, the fifth chapter, verses one. And let's just kind of read that real quickly. Matthew, the fifth chapter, and I'm going to pick it up in the very beginning uh, of, the, of the chapter. It says, seeing the crowds, Jesus, he went up to, on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And what I want to look at right here at the beginning, and just if you did not know, Matthew's the fifth chapter, sixth chapter, and seventh chapter, a very popular section of, uh, of, of the gospel account of Matthew. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Famously, at the very beginning, what we're getting into is what's called the Beatitudes, where Jesus basically tells, blessed or rather happy is the person who exhibits these characteristics, these attitudes, these behaviors. And the one we're going to look at today, of course, is in Matthew 5, verse 6, talking about hungering and thirsting. And I think that this is a great analogy that Jesus used. Of course, I think many of his analogies are good, and I'm sure you do, but there's one thing about this. We all are all human, 
And we know what it's like to be hungry and thirsty. We know what it's like to feel like that. And so right here, Jesus has an analogy that's going to have both physical and spiritual implications. Physically, of course, we've already kind of covered that. We know that. Poverty, very pro uh, prevalent in Jesus' day, very prevalent in the Old Testament. We hear the prophets oftentimes exhibit basically that God has a special favor for those who live in poverty. Because oftentimes they live in poverty by means of other people taking advantage of them. Israel is a great example of someone that, or God, basically taking upon himself. And we, of course, we know the reasons, you know, genealogically. We know that they were basically the descendants of Abraham. But we also know that God favors what is considered in our society to be the marginal or the marginalized. The ones who aren't really considered, you know, very high up in the social totem pole or anything like that. There's a special place for people and for, you know, uh, examples like that all through the Bible. But there's also a spiritual implication that we see from this hungering and thirst. Let's just think about the context that Jesus was in right here. The context of the wider world. Jesus is sitting down. He's talking to a group of people. They are Galileans. There might have been other people from Samaria. There might have been people from down from Judea. But what we know is that this is in the first century. This is in what they call the land of Palestine at the time. And politically, the context basically was is that Jews hungered and thirsted spiritually to see the Messiah come and and take away the pagan rule, the oppression that they experienced at the hands of the Roman Empire. They thirsted, they looked forward, literally desired for this to take place. All of those things that they listened to in the synagogue, the, the people would get up there and speak from, uh, you know, the, the, the Old Testament is, you know, what they were speaking from. The, the book of Isaiah from Jeremiah, all the prophets about, hey, look, Here's the deal. We are in this situation, but there's coming a time where God's going to bring his Messiah and he's going to deliver us. We see this at the birth of Jesus. We're not going to turn there, but if you were to read the accounts in Luke, Jesus is born in Luke, and then later his mother and Joseph, they, they take him to the temple to fulfill what was required to basically offer the certain sacrifices or the specific sacrifices in the temple for those who were firstborn. And there were a couple individuals there. One of them was named Simeon. Another was a woman named Anna. And both of them were said to be righteous individuals who were longing to see the restoration of Israel, the redemption and the deliverance of Israel. And so we know in the context of this day, people not only would physically be hungering and thirsting, they would also have a spiritual hunger and thirst. Why? Because they thirsted for what they always heard and read was going to happen. They had heard the stories about how God had delivered them from Egypt, how God had set them up in this promised land. And constantly now, they're constantly reminded when they see Roman soldiers walking by, that it's a constant reminder that they're still suffering, that they're still in that punishment mode, that, that they're still suffering the consequences of what their ancestors did to lose that because God sent basically oppression on Israel, allowed them to go into captivity, but they knew that there was hope. There was hope from the prophets and what the prophets had to say. 
Can we not relate to this? We are here at the Feast of Tabernacles. What do we look forward to? What are some of the common things we talk about? We just heard a message about how when you see the things on the news, you see all of that, all of that stuff that's, you know, the evil that's going on, it's eradicated. We're looking forward to a time when these things are eradicated. Some of the common illustrations we always hear for years, my entire life, I hear discussed at the Feast of Tabernacles are things like the law flowing from Zion, Jesus ruling and reigning on earth, the lion and the lamb laying down together, instruments of violence being transformed into instruments of peace. And quite literally, this is the exact same thing that Jesus' hairs were longing for as well. Albeit they didn't understand it in full. They might have had a jilted understanding and they might have thought that really what was supposed to happen first was that Jesus was supposed to be this buff military guy that was going to basically almost be like this military commander and drive out the Roman forces and establish the kingdom of God right there. And in their minds, the kingdom of God was a restored autonomous Israel. Israel back to what it once was. Okay? We even see this in the book of Acts. We see this take place when Jesus, right before he ascends to heaven, what do the disciples ask him? Now they're apostles. They're getting ready to be sent out into the world to teach the nations about all the things that Jesus did, all the things that Jesus taught. And they asked him, hey, before you go, Jesus, is, is, is it at now that you're going to restore the kingdom? And Jesus doesn't deny that that's going to take place. It's exactly what we're here looking forward to. There's coming a day. And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that Father has put in his authority. But for now, go out into the world and be examples. Teach them about me. Get followers. Bring, basically grow this family. That's what Jesus was all about. Today we see evil. We see oppression. We see unrighteousness reign in our land, in our world, in a host of forms. Forms. We see oppression from disease, from illnesses, uh, from depression itself, from both physical as well as mental illnesses. We see addictions. We see a pover poverties. We see even corrupt governments at home and abroad. We see evil from terrorist regimes and even evil from our next door neighbors. And what I mean by that is, is that, for instance, just a few days ago, even during the Feast of Tabernacles, we had another school shooting, this time being at a college and we see these things take place in places that usually you don't think violence is supposed to take place. Places like theaters, schools, places that aren't places of combat. And oftentimes the individuals who do this, they have maybe exhibited some signs of mental disorder or mental illness. But oftentimes people come and say, I grew up with this guy. He was my next door neighbor for years. You know, when I, the, I'm a school teacher and a few years ago, uh, we had a tragedy take place. Uh, a wasn't in my building, but it was in my district and pretty close to the building I, I, I work at. We had an individual, a 15-year-old kid, come to school with a gun and commit suicide in the bathroom. This was a freshman in high school that was whatever he was going through. I'm not judging him, and the great thing is that we know that there's a plan and there's, there's more to this life and that there's a loving God that we have. But how do you go home with his classmates that were there present at school? How do you go home and explain to your 15-year-old freshman child why Susie or Michael, these aren't the names of the individuals, just give you an example why they decided to take their own life. 
We can think about Sandy Hook a few years ago. This took place just about a month and a half after the Sandy Hook incident. I'm not trying to be doom and gloom with you. I'm just trying to look at our world. And these are the things why we thirst, because we see these things take place. But how do you go home and you tell your child that their brother or sister is not coming home because some guy that has no relation to them whatsoever decided to come in with a weapon and take their life? How do you tell your child that? It's five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve years old. How do you tell an adult that? Those are the things that take place in our world. Today, people are hungry. They are. They are hungry. And we're going to get into that. We're going to look. There's two sides of human nature. We understand there's two sides. But connection today, we know that people hunger. They hunger for many things. They want satisfaction in life. They want happiness in life. They want safety and security in life. They want fulfillment in their marriage, fulfillment in their families, fulfillment in their career, fulfillment in their hobbies. But oftentimes, people look for fulfillment, try to satisfy these arenas of their life in the wrong places. They look to power. They look to money. They look to fame, notoriety, importance. They want to be important. They want to be accepted in society. They look to sex, drugs, alcoholism, things, stuff, materialism, even one branch of Christianity promotes that that's what Christianity is all about. Accumulate things, that's a sign that you're blessed. That's a sign of your blessing. Of course, I'm referring to what is known as the health and wealth gospel. Oddly enough, people even have a hunger for religion. People by nature are religious. World history teaches this. All of the world religions that we have seen, everybody, there is something about human beings that they're religious. And I think it's because we are a thinking, cognitive, consciously aware human or species that causes us to ask those questions in life. That ask, that causes us to think deeper than just food or water and things like that, but more complex things. There's a myriad of reasons why I think, and I think we could have a discussion on this for a long period of time, why people, there is a hunger for religion. There is a hunger for something higher than themselves. Maybe it's because troubles that they're experiencing. Maybe it's because troubles they see other people experiencing. They, they want an answer. Why do people suffer? What could be the solution to this? Maybe they have an, a, a void in their life. Ecclesiastes 3.11 hints at this, that God has put eternity in our hearts. And that passage is disputed, but it has traditionally been interpreted that God has, as we are in His image, howbeit we are you know, living in a nature that is a sinful nature, and we know that there are scriptures where it says, you know, the heart of humans is deceitful. But there is another side to humans. There is something about our species, because we are creating the image of God, that wants to know, what does this all mean? What does this all mean? What is the solutions to when I turn on the news and all those problems? Sometimes people are just curious. They want to know where we've come from, how we got here. The age-old question, what is the meaning of life and what is our purpose in it? Oftentimes, again, what we see is we see people, just like they fulfill their you know, desires of life in the wrong areas, they fulfill you know, their pursuits for religion in the wrong areas as well. Let's go to Jeremiah, the second chapter, verses 11 through 13. We can talk about examples of ancient Israel. 
ancient Israel, what did they do? God delivers them out of the, uh, the land of Egypt. They're on their way to the promised land. Moses is up on the mountain. And what takes place down beneath? They want a God. They want to take God and fashion God in their image, in the image that they want God to be in. We see this today still. Jeremiah, the second chapter, verse 11 through 13 says, Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and may be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. They pass for the promise that God has given, for the reality, for the illusion. And we can look and see how, how many people do this. C.S. Lewis had a great quote in his this was actually taken from a compilation of his essays, The Weight of Glory, and some of his other addresses. He says, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition, and when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the, uh, by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And of course, if you were from England or English, you would understand what that means, holiday, vacation, basically. We live in a society, we see a lot of people, they, what they do is they have that religious curiosity. There, there's kind of a desire for religion. They want to maybe get to something higher than that's them, that's something that's greater. And they look for it in what I call formula theology. Wear this covering. Pray facing this direction. Grow this beard. Do this dance. Don't do this dance. Chant, chant these words. Say it in Hebrew. Say it in Latin. Say it in Arabic. Confess to this person. Read these books. So many religions today resort to what I see as man-made formulas. Do these things and you will get to God. Do these things and you will understand what it, this life is all about. That you will basically be righteous when you accomplish these things and oftentimes they have nothing to do with the Bible whatsoever. They're man-made. They are creating basically the things of God, the image of God and what they think as human beings he should be. We also see what's called tabloid theology and I didn't come up with this one but this is from a guy by the name of Stanley Grins and Roger Olson. They wrote a book called Who Needs Theology? And just to kind of explain what tabloid theology is, maybe you've been in line at the grocery store before, and what do you see? You see a list of magazines, and they all have these, like, overdone shock value uh, headlines. So-and-so is getting a divorce. So-and-so is, you know, uh, has found alien bones from Mars in this mountain. Just shock value tabloid stuff to get your attention. Well, religion has its own version of these crazes as well. Someone writes a book and claims to go to heaven. You buy this book, you, you know, you've got, you know I, I forget what the name of the book was a few years ago, but it was kind of the, there was one individual by the name of Jesse Duplantis who wrote a book, and maybe you've heard of him before, wrote a book about his experience in going to heaven, and God told him that God, you know, basically all these different stories about how God said, I wanted you to have these things. People Love to hear about that. And, of course, they're always couched in, hey, I went to heaven. And people are like, oh, really? That's an example of tabloid theology. The bones of the Nephilim, the giants of Genesis 6, have been found. They like to, you know, basically satisfy their curiosity through things like that. Someone comes up with, and this is 
obviously all of us can relate to this. Someone comes up with some new scheme with biblical prophecies on, they can pinpoint with formulations and mathematics and charts when Jesus is going to return and the events that's going to happen before he returns and they're going to tell you a list of passages or events that are prophesied in the Bible and they're basically going to say, this thing in history is basically this scripture, this thing in history is this scripture, look, I've never been wrong before and then when they're wrong, what happens is, what do they say? I was wrong? No, my calculation was incorrect. The theory's still right, but it's my calculation. Okay? People get into sometimes within their desire to search for something greater than them, they get caught up in what is called by Stanley Grins and Roger Olson as tabloid theology. I think there's also another poignant illustration. This is by no means, this is actually, I think to some extent, good in some ways. A few weeks ago, maybe, I think it was during the Day of Atonement actually, what do we have going on in America? We had the Pope's visit to the United States, right? We had, I don't, know, I don't know the numbers, thousands, maybe millions of people who got on buses. I know where I'm from in Tulsa, they had buses leaving on one day to go to, I think it was Philadelphia, or maybe it was the one when he was in D.C., to go and see the Pope speak. And so there, a lot of these people, they're incorrect in the way they view you know, their ideas about God. But I was looking and seeing some of the signs, seeing some of the children, they wanted hope. They thirsted for something. They thirsted for, you know, to be close to God. And of course, incorrectly through the Pope or through any man. But there was a hunger there. They might have been fulfilling it or trying to satisfy it in the wrong ways. But there was something that a lot of them, they just, maybe they were in poverty. Maybe their family was stricken with some sort of disease and they were reaching out to what they knew to be the way to feel close to God, the Pope. Of course, there was a lot of, there was an, I think there was the big hot headlines where there was a little girl who had broken free from the Pope's secret service. I don't know what they call it. I don't know if he used Obama's secret service or he had his own. He was in his little, what they call the Pope Mobile, and he was driving down. And this little girl kind of breached the security. Of course, they caught her, but the Pope, you know, basically said, bring her over. And what takes place is, is that she gives the Pope this letter. And of course, it had to do with immigration. It had to do, you know, she was an immigrant her, or her father was. And that's a whole big issue. People are suffering and people want answers. So the second question we have to ask, though, we know that some people, they obviously search for the wrong things to fulfill this desire that they have. What type of righteousness is Jesus talking about? What type of righteousness is Jesus talking about? Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And I think that the idea that Jesus is talking about, given the context, and I think this is so relatable to what me and you are here for, is that Jesus is talking about people who have a thirst for faithfulness and closeness with God. They have a thirst and a hunger to be faithful to God, to get their behaviors in line with God's ways. And they also, they're not satisfied with just themselves becoming in line with the ways of God. They want to see society follow suit as well. They want to see justice reign. They want to see a godliness in the society in which they live in. They want to see those characteristics that are marked by the Messiah's coming and the inauguration of God's reign through the Messiah on earth to become a reality. Those things we talk about, the law flowing from Zion, the eradication of pagan empires. 
a righteousness that longs for, as Jesus said in his model prayer, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. A hunger and a thirst that makes people disgusted with their own sinfulness, the sinfulness of society, and a deep desire and hunger that is consistent with what Peter is talking about when he says in 2 Peter, the third chapter, verse 13, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We have a thirst that causes us to be homesick. To make us look at the kingdom of God, what we're here looking for, to be sick for it. Basically, you know, what, uh, you know I remember as a boy, I was, you know, sometimes I would go and spend the night with, you know, a friend and, or I would become homesick. You know, as an adult, being homesick is a little different. As a child, usually when you're homesick, there's, you're, you're anxious, you're, there's a little, maybe you're not familiar with the people that you're with or where you're at, and it kind of makes you a little scared. But today, when we're adults, we get homesick. We, we want what's comforting to us. And it's actually looking at a righteousness that we desire for that gives us a comfort because we feel like that is our home. That is our home. Jesus gives us words of encouragement. Those who have this hunger and thirst will be filled. They will have their hunger and their thirst satisfied. I'm going to go to Isaiah, the 55th chapter, verses 1 through 3. This is a beautiful string of passages it says ho everyone who thirsts come to the waters and you who have no money come and buy and eat yes come buy wine and milk without money and without price why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance incline your ear and come to me here and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. That's what God is offering to us. That's what we're looking forward to. Not fulfillment that comes through money, that comes through things, comes through power, comes through drugs, comes through notoriety or fame, but the actual bread of life that Jesus talks about. The food, the spiritual food that sustains us. The spiritual food that sustains us. Which brings me to my last objective for the day. What does hungering and thirsting look like? What does Jesus' words prompt us to do? The key idea I want to bring out is action. Thirsting and hungering should prompt us to action. I'm going to give you an illustration that I was reading through last night. I, when I read the Sermon on the Mount for many years, I've, been, uh, I've had a book by the title... Uh, the Sermon on the Mount by a guy by the name of uh, Daniel Doriani. And I was preparing this message, and I came to this little story that he was talking about when he was discussing this passage. Uh, and he was basically talking about how through, and this individual is a minister, and he's been in different ministries uh, throughout his entire career. And he was discussing a time where he went to a conference of some sort, and he had some sort of uh, fiasco with his transportation. Basically, long story short, the entire day he was in meetings and conferences, and it was 10 o'clock at night, and he hasn't ate all night long, okay, or all day long. And he's on his way home. And he has a driver, someone who is maybe with another organization or whatever. Long story short, he was so hungry, and the driver, uh, it being late at night, wasn't real interested in pulling over for him maybe to get a bite to eat just at a fast food restaurant. And he was describing this situation, and he was talking about how he was almost at the point of threatening, and I'm not 
in any way, shape, or form condoning this, threatening the driver that he was going to pull the wheel and take over the, the car, the vehicle, because he was so hungry. His hunger led to action. It prompted him to action. And so basically I have two things that we can look for in our lives to prompt us for action. Number one, seek sanctification. Seek to be set apart. Eradicate the sins in our life that we need to work on. Are we so hungry that it has prompted us to take action and war against those things that we've been putting off? Pray to God more to help us become more in line with His will, to live a life more in full line with His holiness. Do this in the face of the evils that we have seen today, in the face of persecution, and even the face of ridicule. Because we know that it's getting harder uh, to you know, profess to be a Christian. It brings up a myriad of ideas in people's heads. They have it. They're thinking that the Christianity is the ill of the world. Of course, it depends on what part of the world and what part of the country you're in. We know that this is a fact. And the second thing, and it goes along with what Jesus is talking about, seek social righteousness. Unfortunately, today, we hear so much talk about what's called social justice. And part of social justice is something that is godly. Seeking to help people in need is good. It is godly, and God does have a favor on those people. We need to understand our poverty ourselves, spiritually, that we have went through and what God did to lift us out of that. And so seeking to help people, seeking social justice is good, of course, if it is done with righteousness. Not the things that, you know, not the whole idea of basically, you know, relying on governments and the, you know, governments forcing you to pay this tax, you know, this amount of taxes and that amount of taxes. I'm not talking about that at all. And I don't want you guys or anyone in here to think that I'm getting political in any way, shape, or form. If you know me, that's not me. I'm talking about the social justice and the social righteousness that the Bible talks about. That's the type of things that I think that we need to be seeking. Do we have situations in our business life, in our community life, in our church life where we can help bring about social righteousness? Are there poor among us that we could help feed and clothe? Maybe the poor aren't physically poor, but maybe there's a spiritual, maybe they need help in a spiritual manner. Are there oppressed among us that we can help break free? Can we be a witness to God's kingdom on earth in the here and now? Do we thirst and hunger for social righteousness that is to see our society be eradicated, eradicated of its evils? Do we pass the buck on Jesus and just say, well, that's just for Jesus to do. I can't do anything. You know, some of that's right. We can't fix this world. We need Jesus. Only through Him can this world be fixed. But can't we maybe do our part a little bit? No matter how little effect that it might have, can't we still be doing those things? I'll put it to you this way. If you were starving to death and you only had one piece of steak, would you still not gobble that piece of steak up? You would. So in the same way, if there's anything, if you're hungry, if we are hungry and thirsty as God's people, as God's church, no matter how small of an impact it may make, we still need to pursue those areas. 
We still need to exhibit that thirst. That doesn't just, you know, it's not just a fact, it's a reality that prompts us to action. As we continue on the last few days of this feast, I'm sure that all of these messages have been tied to that idea of the kingdom of God. I mean, that's what we're here for. That's what it's about. Let's ask ourselves this question, not just at this feast, but as we leave, and as we hear the other messages, and as we heard Doyle talk about today, do we thirst and hunger for that time period where that solution is going to take place? What are we doing now to be, as Doyle mentioned, to be the solution? Are we exhibiting hunger and thirst? I encourage all of us, including myself, I'm just like you, I'm just like everyone here, I'm not anyone any different. I have, you know, I mean, probably more problems than most in, in areas where I could actually be working on. I implore us, I encourage us to consciously and prayerfully maybe identify those areas where we can, you know, act on our thirst and our hunger more. As we're here to keep this Feast of Tabernacles, uh, I, I continue to pray that that's something that we, we do. Of course, I think all of us here do. Uh, we're looking forward to a kingdom. Jesus said, blessed is he or she, that person that hungers and thirsts, for they shall be filled. That's what this kingdom is about. We're going to be filled. And this earth is going to be filled in the future when Jesus comes back to reign. In the time being, let's act like citizens of that kingdom and thirst for both that personal and social righteousness and act upon it.